Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of The Synopsis. I am your host, Jason, of The Detail Your Mind. So I must admit, I wasn't planning on having this particular episode be delayed so long, almost a week here. Uh, work's kind of gotten in the way. Uh, pretty hectic uh, week at work, along with uh, a little bit of a head cold. I'm sure you can probably tell just by my voice that uh, uh, I've got a little bit of a head congestion going on right now, so um, wasn't foreseeing that in my uh, my schedule either. Kind of wish some of this mucus and uh, viruses would start uh, making appointments with my secretary, secretary in order to uh, let me know ahead of time when I'm planning on getting sick, you know, so that I can uh, plan for this, but... Uh, uh, anyway, uh, all jokes aside, uh, I'm hoping to be able to complete this particular uh, portion of the synopsis. That should be uh, the conclusion, part two of my uh, synopsis of Panacoke and his uh, document or p- pamphlet or whatever you want to call it, uh, Lenin as Philosopher. Um, last time we left off about a week ago, I went through chapters one through four, and uh, this episode should cover the rest, uh, chapters 5 through 8, I believe, and uh, hopefully I can get through it all here in the course of an hour, and hopefully I can get through it without having any other interruptions that will, for whatever reason, uh, stop the recording on this app whenever I get a phone call or text message. So I have tried to record this multiple times, and every single time it seems like I have something interrupt my uh, my recording session, uh, whether it's a phone call or a text message that basically stops the recording, but doesn't, you know, it doesn't reflect on the, uh, the view screen that I have right now on the app. Um, it just ticks on and on, you know, minutes and seconds into the uh, duration of the episode, but it doesn't tell me that it stopped recording at whatever time period the uh, the phone call or the text message dropped in and disrupted the, uh, the recording. So uh, hopefully I can get through all this this time around. I turned everything on to silent uh, so I don't get any notifications of phone calls or anything like that. If that doesn't work, I might have to resort to uh, doing uh, airplane mode and hoping that I can... Uh, um, Record it in airplane mode and then, you know, post it onto the uh, podcast app from there. So, enough of that out of the way. Let's uh, get back into uh, part two of my synopsis of Panacoke and his pamphlet, Lenin as Philosopher. I'll try to run through these as quickly as possible and not repeat myself and not, uh, uh, you know, drudge it out too long, but uh, chapter 5 deals with Evanarius, and this is kind of a critique, I guess, if you will, of Panacoke, uh, critiquing Evanarius' version of materialism. Once again, he is a middle class or capitalist materialist, and so his idea or his concepts of materialism will be focused around the um, capitalist class or the uh, the middle class class, if you will, the uh, the upper echelons of uh, capitalist society, the owners, the uh, um, the investors, the people that have money to where they don't have to work or labor to make their money, but they've got money to make and, and expand their wealth through investments. 
Um, and so he believes that humanity has three avenues, links or dependencies, that will help develop his worldview. Uh, one is between the world and the claims of others. The other is between the world and our own individual mind. And then the last one is between our own mind and our own and, and claims. You know, so it kind of forms like a triangle, if you will. Um, to where basically what creates our worldview is the world, our personal selves, and then others. Um, and there seems to be a recurring theme when you when you read Avenarius, or at least when you uh, uh, read Panacoke describing and and Avenarius's uh, uh, positions on materialism, you kind of get this idea that uh, what is personal, what is subjective experiences, these tend to be what he primarily recognizes as the main driving forces of experience and creating this worldview. Uh, it's a very individualistic approach to materialism. And as a result, it becomes very clear that uh, in this middle class um, materialism, something only becomes of concern or importance if it is something that will personally affect that particular individual. So, for example, having um, a good ac- good access to heat, especially in the winter months, kind of like what we had here in the Great Lakes region a couple weeks ago when it was hitting 10 degrees and down to minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit with the wind chill. Um, you know, that is an experience. That is a, 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 a worldview that is developed that will be different than somebody from, let's say, Texas, right? If somebody's living in Houston, Texas, uh, they might not have their worldview built around the need or the importance of having good heating options to keep themselves warm in the wintertime. And then vice versa. Their worldview might be centered around keeping their place cool during the immense heat and humidity of the summertime, whereas uh, somebody who lives up in, you know, uh, Winnipeg, Canada, or up in Alaska, might not have the same needs. And so basically what Avenarius is saying is that uh, um, our worldview is is very subjective. It's based off of us, our own individualistic needs, Um, and not around, you know, just overall needs of the collective. Um, And therefore... Heating, you know, like I said, going back to this example, might not be that important for somebody down in, in uh, Texas to where their whole worldview would be around, well, I don't need it, so why should you need it? Well, because I live in a place that gets a bunch of snow and you live down where in this deep south where snow and ice only come in your drink, you know? Um, so that's kind of what what is kind of being implied here is kind of what's being explored here is like this individualistic idea and that seems to be the overarching theme of Panacoke when it comes to addressing the philosophy of um, Avenarius is that it's very subjective he bases worldview and the needs based off of individualistic or personal needs uh, and that these needs aren't really own they're really only developed once that individual 
realizes they need it. That it's something that will directly affect them. Or maybe even indirectly affect them. Um, I could come up with anecdotal uh, examples of, you know, just when it comes to healthcare and, you know, the, the, the vaccine back during COVID. Uh, it wasn't something that certain family members of mine felt was a necessity until it started affecting their own, our own family or themselves. Then they started changing their tune about how it's very important to have a good healthcare system that would make sure that their needs are met. So this is a prime example of what is being meant by uh, middle class or capitalist uh, materialism. It's this idea that something is not important or a need until it directly impacts the, the person or the individual that is coming up with this new concept within their worldview or what's important to them. Uh, as a result of some of this stuff, it basically leads to the erosion of a social consciousness and to the erosion of humanity or humans as being social beings. And we're kind of seeing that, you know, we're seeing that in the rhetoric of today in general, in that, you know, there's this loss of cohesion amongst us as society, as social uh, creatures, uh, humans. And so everyone across the political spectrum in the United States is kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're regurgitating this, this talking point about how we seem to have a disconnect with ourselves and others. And yet no one seems to have the, uh, the wherewithal to figure out, hey, what can we do to fix this? It's just, hey, we're observing this problem, but we're not going to do anything to fix it. Which come, becomes a, another aspect of criticism when it comes to middle class materialism that we'll soon come across here down the road. And what happens is, is with this whole idea that Evan Arias is putting forth when it comes to materialism, uh, basically what Panacoke is mentioning is that it's a reconstruction of society to be more individualistic. And as a result, it's becoming the antithesis of itself. It's basically forming a contradiction. You know, and, and so... This is more my words than his, but it's kind of an oxymoron when you say an individualistic society. That, you know, you can't be an individualistic society because a society, by its very own definition, is the collective. It's a group of people coming together to accomplish uh, similar goals and desires and needs in order to benefit themselves as a group. So society in general, is a collective. It's not individualistic. Um, and this is kind of mirrored back in the 80s when we see Reagan and Thatcher um, kind of pushing this whole idea of, you know, we need to be individualistic and not collectivist because, you know, the most important thing is individual needs and wants at the expense of what is needed by the many. Hence, air conditioning for people in the summertime and good heating systems for people in the wintertime and having easy and cheap uh, access to them. So, 
that's that's kind of what's being mentioned here is, um, you know, that this whole concept of middle class materialism is really destructive. It's the antithesis to itself. Uh, that middle class materialism is contradiction to materialism in general, or at least historical materialism, because it puts the the whims of the individual in the capitalist class above the needs of those in the working class. Um, so that's kind of what he was mentioning too, and this kind of boils down to the overall critique that uh, Panacoke has towards Evan Arius in the differences that he points out with uh, middle class materialism and historical materialism as denoted in Marxism. Um, So he mentions how the biggest thing is that, uh, well two big things, is the you know the, the 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 call to action and who is the uh, um, who is the audience that this call to action is aimed at? What do I mean by that? Is who who's who's there to who's here to heed the call and who's there to uh, act upon it, if you will? And so, Panacoke mentions that you know this idea that middle-class materialism is all about meeting the, 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 the whims, the wants of the capitalist so that they can, you know, be passive about their gain in knowledge, you know, and it, from my perspective, it's kind of like the stereotypical uh, liberal snob that you all, that we all hear about, you know, in the news or in movies or anything like that, where they, they just like have like this you know, holier than thou, look at me, I'm so intellectual, I'm going to an art exhibit, and that painting is very profound of the human condition, and it's, you know, changed my my life in some way, but you don't really see them change their life in any way at all once they get out there and apply this new tidbit of knowledge that they've gained into their own personal lives. And so that's kind of where it's coming from, is they're very passive about their materialism when it comes to middle class materialism. It's, you know, art or knowledge or all these different things are there as kind of a a thing to ponder or to think about. And that's about it. It's a very passive uh, set of materialism where you gain knowledge for knowledge's sake, but then you don't really pass it on or utilize it in the world to make it better for not just yourself, but others. Whereas historical materialism as espoused by Marx and other socialist thinkers, is that it's got to have? It's not only supposed to be geared towards meeting the needs of the masses and primarily the, the working masses, but it's also got to have a call to action. It's got to be like, okay, here's the problem. Here's what we're observing in in our environment. Here's what we're observing about the human condition. Okay, cool, but what can we go and do to change this, to make it for the better for us? So that's really what is being said by Panacoke here, is that uh, there doesn't seem to be any call to action or any kind of incentive to go out there and make a change for the better. But it's mainly there 
to be just some sort of passive thing that you just ponder for a bit and then you go about your life. And that is why middle class materialism isn't really materialism because it's just a new form of being idealistic in some regard. Um, and so that's kind of how he ends the whole chapter. But then he goes on in chapter 6 to talk about Lenin. And this is basically his criticism of Lenin kind of in the same regard, you know. Um, and the overall criticism that Panacoke has on Lenin and Lenin's criticism of these middle class materialists like Evanarius or Mock or anybody else that may or may not be mentioned is that... Um, Basically, he criticizes Lenin as not upholding Marxist criticisms of these people, of these other materialists. That is the overarching uh, crutch to Panacoke's uh, criticism of Lenin, is that he is not uh, arguing against middle-class materialism using Marxist uh, ideology or materialism, but instead coming at it and arguing it at it from its own back door. He is arguing against middle class materialism using middle class materialist talking points, which I do see some value in that. So I, I think that from a certain point of view, that is something that needs to be done. I think that in order to properly critique a particular position, not only should you critique it from your own position, but also critique it from their own position and kind of give them a double whammy. Taste of their own medicine as well as a taste of your own medicine. So, um, that's how Panacoke uh, basically criticizes Lenin, is that he's, he's not criticizing these other thinkers based off of Marxist ideology, but of their very own middle class uh, materialist or capitalist ideology. Um, and so what he does is to kind of help promote his criticism of Lenin, Panacoke goes in and starts providing a background, you know. And so he, he provides a background of what it's like in Lenin's time in Russia. And <coughs> kind of highlights how it's different as compared to the rest of Western Europe when um, Marx and other earlier socialists were combating feudalism in Western uh, Europe as well as the Americas. And so he mentions how the revolution against feudalism in Russia was delayed compared to the rest of Europe. Um, mainly because of some of the, the, the social factors and how they were kind of seen as like in the back corner of, of, of Europe. And so they were kind of, since they were on the, uh, the edges of Europe and its boundaries, that meant that all of these changes to society slowly filtered their way out into uh, Russia, mainly because of its proximity to the, the core of thought in Europe and to some extent uh, the United States. 
and, and that kind of makes sense, you know, like Russia didn't really have too much vested interest in exploring the quote-unquote new world that was North and South America. But most of the active they got in, in terms of uh, checking out North America was going eastbound into Alaska. And that's really about it. But they had some, they had other issues closer to home that they had to deal with. They were busy uh, um, carving out their portion of the frontier in northern Asia. Siberia, Kamchatkas, places like that. So um, their focus was elsewhere, if you will. And so just the environment in Russia meant that it didn't really, you know progress in the same fashion as the west the, the western portions of Russia or I mean of, of Europe um, he also mentioned the social conditions in Russia led to the rising capitalist uh, class aligning with the already developed socialist movement in Russia to help combat traditional forces in the feudal state aka the Tsar and his allies in the Orthodox Church so if you remember back to part one of this uh, uh, critique or this uh, synopsis, Panacoke was talking about how in Western Europe, it was the capitalists who were more developed in their fight against uh, the feudal state and the feudal society. And then they tethered the working class onto their movement until it became evident that the capitalists weren't going to provide a society or a, a system or an institution that would help meet the needs of the workers. And then the workers just kind of jettisoned themselves from the capitalist movement and started developing their socialist or Marxist movement. Um, and then we see now here in Russia, roughly half a century or a century or longer later, uh, we see how it's just flip-flopped around. Now it's the socialist movement in Russia that's more developed, and it's this fledgling new capitalist movement that has to tether itself onto the already developed socialist movement and in order for both of them to team up against the feudal system in Russia. As a result we see the capitalist class starting to impose some of their positions, their ideas into the Marxist philosophy that we see within the early socialists in Russia. As a result, Lenin being the kind of the de facto leader of the socialist movement in Russia has had to take it upon himself politically, philosophically, economically, socially, and all these different avenues to combat this capitalist uh, rhetoric and prevent it from, you know, setting foot in the socialist movement in Russia. So that's kind of where we, we see the, uh, um, the, the socialist movement in Russia and where Lenin is coming from when he starts to combat some of these capitalist uh, thinkers when it comes to materialism. And as a result, Panacoke mentions that uh, Lenin, in his defense of Marxism and socialism as a vying economic and social order um, to capitalism, 
he becomes overzealous, if you will, according to Pentacle. Um, so he starts uh, arguing against middle class or capitalist materialism using argumentative fallacies, as well as the overarching uh, theme that uh, Pentecoch mentions is that Lenin betrays uh, Marxist ideas and talking points, and instead of using Marxism to argue against Mach and Evanarius and middle class materialism in general, he claims that Lenin instead uh, kind of gives up his Marxist positions and then goes and argues against middle class materialism using middle class materialist talking points. And that um, Panacoke mentions that he wouldn't have had such a uh, criticism of Lenin if Lenin had just stuck to making uh, arguments using Marxist positions rather than quote-unquote betraying Marxism and then taking up the very ideas that he is claiming to be against. You know, so he, he, he kind of makes, you know, a couple claims that Lenin is strawmanning uh, um, these thinkers as being idealistic and not materialist saying that they are being materialists, but they're just not being materialists in a Marxist framework. And then he also claims that uh, um, Lenin is, is claiming that these materialists are being nothing but individualistic and have nothing of the collective. But he also claims that Lenin was not arguing against people like Machinev and Arius using, once again, Marxist ideas to counter them, but other avenues, a.k.a. using their own middle-class capitalist, materialist uh, talking points against them. You know, I think, I happen to think that it should be both. You should be able to argue against a particular talking point using your own, as well as their own talking points, you know, so, um, you know, and this is kind of done, you know, when it comes to religion, um, when you oppose a particular person's religion, and the ideas that that particular religion is espousing, not only do you use your own, coming from, let's say, science, but then you also use their own religion against them, to say, okay, well, this doesn't make sense, because here's your own religion even making making it obvious that it doesn't make sense, you know, and so you're basically trying to demonstrate the contradictions within that their own frame of thinking to show that it's a fallacy to believe in those positions, because if you find the contradictions in their own within their own framework, then it just strengthens your own talking points that counter them as well. So I think that that's kind of something that he, uh, that, that Panacoke uh, just kind of ignores. Um, and he's also, you know, Panacoke also is being very, you know, I guess in a way short-sighted in that 
he uh, he mentions that Lenin is very, being very absolutist about rejecting their positions. And so he claims that Lenin isn't taking the time to fully understand where they are coming from and, and is instead only um, resorting to his own preconceived notions about what Mach and Avenarius are actually talking about. Basically a form of confirmation bias, which is a form of argumentative fallacies. Um, and so that kind of hits back at, at uh, his overall criticism that Lenin is not arguing from a Marxist perspective and he is arguing using fallacies whether it's straw manning or projection or, um, in this case, confirmation bias. Uh, he also says, too, that uh, Lenin doesn't take the time to acknowledge where some of these middle-class materialists get it right, instead only focusing on where they get it wrong, but then not correcting these falsehoods using Marxist uh, talking points or, or solutions but then just coming at it from a middle-class capitalist uh, response, fighting fire with fire, if you will, you know. Arguing against middle-class materialism using middle-class materialist talking points to show that it's an invalid uh, position to hold. Once again, this kind of goes back to my statement, it's gotta be both. In this regard, you got to be able to use Marxist and capitalist uh, talking points to uh, show that this particular train of thought is faulty. <coughs> and then beyond that, he kind of goes into the next section, which is his critique of Lenin and how Lenin perceives natural science. So he kind of holds that Lenin has like a very absolutist traditionalist uh, view about um, sci natural science in general. So he claims that uh, Lenin is absolute in his disregard for middle class materialism, that he abandons Marxist principles and takes up middle class materialist uh, ideas to address the faults of middle class materialism and its philosophy. So one thing that he, he mentions is that uh, he claims that Lenin puts up traditionalist uh, understandings of science in order to combat middle-class materialism. So he will um, basically do what he is arguing that the capitalists will do, is that you know capitalists will resort to traditional traditionalism to uphold their positions, and then now he's saying, well, Lenin's also doing that too, because he's going towards traditional views of science and understanding in order to uh, combat and criticize middle-class materialism, whether that's justified or not. Um, he also chastises the concept, or the, even the, the Marxist concept, that uh, science is there to not only make observations about the world and our environment what we can do to 
fix these issues so that it better improves our chances as humanity to survive and thrive and prosper. But he claims that Lenin is also um, chastising science for being quote-unquote prophetic. That he kind of ignores the idea that science, part of science is there to also provide um, predictions as to what the next step is going to be. So much the same way that Marx talks about how socialism is the next step out of uh, capitalism, that each phase of human development serves a purpose, from feudalism to the early stages of capitalism, aka uh, mercantilism, and then that will kind of transition over to more industrialized uh, capitalism, and then that should then turn into or morph into socialism and then to communism. Um, he's claiming that Lenin is, is ignoring this, this fact of science that not only is it there to make observations, but then use the data points that we have from our observations to be like, okay, well, what can we predict is going to happen next so that we can better counter it so that no negative outcomes will happen. So he's saying that uh, um, Lenin is kind of holding this idea that science should be used to make predictions and instead saying that he's trying to claim that science is just becoming another form of religion that makes prophecies and not predictions. Um, and in some regards, I can understand the, the uh, sentiment that is being made by, by Lenin in that, you know, you want to make sure that these predictions are not, that these predictions are rooted in observation, in the data, and in some sort of, you know, uh, grounded understanding, so that it doesn't come off as religious prophecies. Um, otherwise, you kind of run into some problems. Otherwise, the masses who are countering will say, okay, well now science is just another form of religion. And we're seeing that nowadays, you know. We see it from the from the right-wing Christians in that their whole attitude is, oh, well, science is just your religion. Well, no, because there's, you know, one is based off of fact, the other one is based off of fiction. One is based off of observations, the other one is based off of faith, you know. And so I think that's kind of what he's getting, he's hinting at. In terms of Lenin, when he says that we got to watch out that we make sure that our, our predictions don't turn into prophecies. Basically, kind of being humble about the observations that we make and then our ability to properly ascertain what they mean and what the direction is that they're going to take us in. Um, the other aspect that he... Uh, um, claims that Lenin is forsaking when it comes to Marxist ideology is uh, this idea of uh, economy of thought or efficiency of thinking, however you want to word it. And just as, a, as the naming convention implies, it's this idea that the more we are taught to think, critically think, the easier it is for us to understand new concepts and then turn around and have 
and apply what we've learned to change our worldview and our behavior and to then go about developing new solutions to help meet the human need. Uh, and he claims that Lenin is kind of downplaying this idea of efficiency of thought, saying that, oh, it's, a, it's nothing about, but uh, um, promoting simple thinking, you know, um, basically claiming that Lenin thinks that it's not about critical thinking, but it's about just uh, rote, Be, do, doing what you're told to do without understanding what's going on. Um, and so that's kind of where he, he mentions uh, Lenin is, he thinks Lenin is strained from the natural sciences as it pertains to Marxism. And then lastly, once again, Panikok jumps into how he thinks Lenin is, is kind of uh, jumping away from Marxists' uh, understanding of, of materialism. Uh, mainly in that <clears throat> he, he wants to argue against middle-class materialism not using Marxist materialism or historical materialism, however you want to word that naming convention. Um, once, once again, I don't think this is necessarily an issue with Lenin. I think what is happening is Lenin is trying to argue against middle-class materialism using middle-class materialist talking points just to further his own point that middle-class materialism isn't working, you know, that it's not a sound train of thought for meeting the needs of the workers, and he's, basically, he's fighting fire with fire, he's using capitalists, or capitalism's uh, talking points against itself to show that it's not working, I I think that's a very legitimate uh, way to go about arguing against a particular subject, whether it's politics, religion, um, economics, you kind of have to be able to find the faults, the contradictions within a particular system of thought and use those to counter that system of thought alongside the ideas from your own system of thought that counters that other system of thought. So you have to kind of, you know... You have to be able to approach it with from both avenues, from your your side and from the other side, in order to combat and challenge that opposing side's views. Um, chapter that's that, that's kind of how he uh, he leaves off the uh, chapter uh, six and his his ideas about Lenin. Um, he also does talk a little bit too about how he or he complains more. I, I'm going to say complains. Panico complains that uh, um, Lenin is like hyper-focused on being anti-religious. That he, his, he is blindly struggling against religion and this idea of faith versus reason for him to, I guess, acknowledge that maybe in some cases the religious and religious dogma may have gotten it right, but he can't then also turn around and complain that uh, um, that uh, Lenin is being religious from his own perspective, you know. So um, I think it's kind of one of those hypocritical points that that Anna, Anna, that, that Panikok is making. He, he's being hypocritical 
in his criticism of uh, Lenin, especially given the fact that he did spend a significant amount of time discussing the background, setting the scene for where we find Lenin when he's making these uh, criticisms of people like Mock and Evanarius. He's, you know, Panacoke isn't really considering that Lenin is in a system, in a state, in a traditional conservative environment that has the Orthodox Church of Christianity kind of pulling the strings very significantly in Russia. And so you've got the, the, this dual partnership between the Tsar and the church, just like in feudal Western Europe, that is causing a muck and making it so that the middle class, or I'm sorry, the, the working class um, of people are constantly kind of kept down in the drudges and not able to advance and, uh, you know, not only survive, but thrive and prosper as a group. So, um, he does kind of go into a little bit of, about that with, uh, with Lenin, but I don't think it's that big of a deal to, to really jump into. Um, I don't think it's, I think it's kind of just a, uh, you know, him just trying to find fault now at this point. Uh, anyway, moving on to chapter seven, it's called the Ru Russian Revolution. It's basically Panacoke's critique of the, the revolution in Russia. And once again, he does kind of review the uh, conditions in in Russia. Mainly that um, towards the end of the Tsar the Tsar's rule in Russia, capitalism was still a very small factor of Russian society. It was still in its infancy. What systems in place was capitalistic in Russia was mainly imported in. And most of Russians saw it as kind of like a, a version of colonialism where um, capitalists from Western Europe and the Americas were basically invading Russia and bringing in their own version of capitalism in to basically benefit themselves and not the Russian people. Colonialism, imperialism. So in a way, they kind of saw themselves as being the victims of the same system that saw the victimization of Native Americans in the Americas um, or even to some extent, you know, African slaves that were brought over in, during chattel slavery times to the Americas and that whole industry, if you will, within capitalism uh, a couple of centuries beforehand. So uh, that's kind of the attitude that Russians were starting to develop was like, well, are we going to become the, very, the, the next um, victim of Western capitalism? Because all these capitalists are coming over, bringing over their version of capitalism that will only benefit them as the middle class capitalist, but not us as the working class Russian. And so um, there's already this developed socialist movement in place, and then it became a factor of the Russian capitalists to kind of uh, um, stake their footing inside of that movement and kind of try to transform it into their own. Um, as a result, because they needed this kind of partnership with the, the Russian capitalists, a lot of the socialists in Russia did try to kind of merge capitalist and socialist thought into like a hybrid system, if you will, or a hybrid understanding of Marxism. Um, 
as a result, you did see Lennon try to, uh, you know, kind of squash that and kind of hold true to, you know, what is considered like classical or traditional positions of Marxism. Um, but really what his overall critique of the Russian Revolution was is that, uh, according to Panikok, he sees the Russian Revolution wasn't a success for socialism. Instead, what it was is, in his words, it was a, a form of state socialism when it, come to, when it came to the economy. Which, this form of state socialism as an economic entity really just mirrored or was nothing but a form of state capitalism that favored the up-and-coming bourgeoisie or capitalist class of uh, of people, of Russians in the country. Uh, and so basically he kind of accuses the Bolsheviks, the, uh, the, the heirs of Lenin or even possibly Lenin himself as being nothing but capitalists wearing the clothing of Marx. So they, they kind of took on the, uh, um, the, uh, the talking points of Marxism in order to gain favor by the working class so that they could just kind of come in and set themselves up as the new class of capitalists with the new uh, ruling uh, power um, position within the Russian society. Basically kind of stating how uh, capitalism and capitalists got their power in liberal democracies in Western Europe and the Americas. The only difference was that they said, well, whoa, we're not a liberal democracy, we're a we're a socialist democracy. We're a social democracy. Or we are a uh, we're we're Soviet democracy. You know. So um, basically, what Panakok is saying is that the the Bolsheviks only created a, a form of state capitalism, and that Lenin was the kind of like the leader of that movement. And to some to some effect, he is right because Lenin himself said that we have to first go from feudalism to capitalism and then capitalism to socialism. We can't go from feudalism, skip over capitalism, and go right into socialism because we are missing a step in the societal development that is important according to Marx. Because Marx did mention that going from feudalism to capitalism is important. But what is also important is to realize when capitalism is no longer fulfilling the needs and meeting the needs of the working class people, at that point, that's when capitalism is now obsolete and you have to move towards socialism. And so, um, and that was something that was echoed by Lenin. And so he even said, yeah, we are going to set up a state capitalist um, society first because we have to make that important leap from feudalism to capitalism. But then once we get to a certain point, we will transition from capitalism over to socialism. And to, so, to some extent, Lenin acknowledged that this is what the process has to be. But then on the same token, to some extent, Panikok is right in this criticism in that the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution, never actually did get to socialism. It kind of faltered out at what they called state socialism, a.k.a. state capitalism. They set up a capitalist uh, uh, hierarchy, just like in other Western capitalist states, and then they just kind of put on 
socialist naming conventions to kind of hide this fact. And you can kind of see that with, with uh, Stalin, you know, because Stalin said, hey, we've achieved communism. Well, no, you just achieved a form of state socialism or, or state capitalism, you know. State socialism at the very best case scenario, but not real on democratic socialism where it comes from the workers on up, but from the state on down. So, um, you know, so I guess that, that there is that kind of uh, a, a, a positive critique there in terms of Panico, saying that, yeah, sure, you got the, the process going in the right direction, but then you kind of stalled out halfway through. And then lastly, uh, chapter 8 is about the proletarian revolution, and really what this is about is what can be learned about the Russian Revolution, Lenin and his philosophies, those that Lenin inspired, like Stalin, in terms of socialist philosophy, not necessarily their actions that they uh, decided to undergo to, to uh, protect those uh, philosophies, as well as Marxism in general, you know. Um, so he asked, should, should Lenin's focus on religious faith or fideism be central to Marxist struggle for the working class uh, autonomy? You know, that kind of goes into the whole freedom of religion thing. You know, I think that should be, um, everyone should have the, the freedom of religion, but, you know, if, if religion is really supposed to be some sort of a uh, personal experience with whatever deity that you believe in, then that's where that should all end. And I think that's something that Lenin and Marx also discuss, is that, uh, um, that religious thought should, you know, be personal. And the only time that extends beyond the person is that it is, is there to kind of reinforce and uphold and, I guess, kind of, you know, make it a very motivating factor to help others improve their conditions. And so I think where Lenin and Marx kind of chastise religious institutions is that they they view religion as an institution, as a, a construct, as a form of hierarchy. It's lost its way. It's no longer there to help uplift humanity and make it not only uh, survive, but thrive and prosper. And instead, they both view religious institutions as being a form of subjugation of the working class to keep them down in the drudges so they cannot advance and expand themselves beyond their current lowly conditions. So I think that's kind of where we should really be looking at it from. Uh, and the, you know, Pentecost also asked, should, should the Russian Revolution be used as a model for other socialist uh, revolutions? You know, and he talks about how the Soviet Union and the and Soviet democracy just became another version of uh, a capitalist bourgeoisie and, and uh, bureaucracy within the state. Um, and that working emancipation and giving democracy to workers in the economic realm did not happen, even though they had limited democratic voice in the political realm, aka their Soviet form of democracy with the council and stuff like that. Um, 
So, and that can kind of be mirrored in, in today's United States as well. We've got limited democratic voice, we the people, in this liberal democracy that we have because it's a, for, it's a form of Republican, uh, small r Republicanism. Um, but we have very little, if any, democratic voice in our economic endeavors. You know, we don't have a, we don't get to vote on the direction that our company is going in. If our company wants to, if anyone's company wants to pick up shop and move overseas to uh, China or Mexico, the, the workers don't have a vote to say, no, stay here because we want our jobs to remain here. It's all left up to the whims of the stockholders and the uh, executive class who quote-unquote owns the company. And therefore, they get to make the decision based off of their own personal capitalist wants and what will get them, what will garner them more profits as opposed to what will meet the needs of their workers. And that right there is the crux of Panacoke's discussion about Lenin as philosopher as well as this overarching criticism of middle-class or capitalist materialism versus historical or Marxist materialism. You know, um, how is it affecting, you know, so so basically what, what, what's being asked here is how can this uh, help benefit the, ma- the working masses? How can these things that are talked about by Lenin or Marx, Panacoke, uh, Mock, Avenarius, all these different thinkers, well, how can they benefit the working class? The person who works, who wakes up at the butt crack of dawn, is at work by 8 o'clock in the morning, works 40, 50, sometimes even 60 hours a week, couple jobs, you know, long hours, getting out in the elements, working hard for little pay. What, what ideas, what, what kind of a society can we build based off of principles that will benefit the working class? And then lastly, the kind of like the last thing that this whole thing kind of rounds out about on is the, the very simple, I think, concept that society is a reflection of humanity's collective values. I think that is very true about what a society is defined as. It's our collective values, what we think is important. And you will see what is important in a group of people's attitudes and behaviors based off of how that particular society functions. So when we establish a capitalist society, what we are saying is we value the ability of the of the richest among us to be able to get richer and richer and richer at our expense. Because that is really what capitalism is all about. Those with the money will make, will, will supposedly create the, uh, um, the, the company. And as a result, that company and its decision-making process will be dictated by these rich people who either, you know, invested their money to have a, a larger say in, in the direction of that company or started the company because they already had the money and therefore they are looking to make decisions that will make them more money based off of their ownership of it. So it, it's it's really, it, 
it's really signifying what society values. And because we live in a capitalist society, what he is saying is that uh, we are basically stating who, who and what our values are. We think that the rich should get richer at our expense because we want a capitalist society. And that is what the capitalist society, or that's what capitalism as an economic system is based around. The private profit of a select few individuals potentially at the exploitation or expense of the mass amount of working class people. Whereas if we decide to set ourselves up in a socialist society or a social democracy, if you will, that means now our values, our ideas, our goals are centered around the prosperity and the advancement of the mass amount of working class people that the benefits of society should be applied towards making sure that all of us as a working class majority are are met and so that's really what the crux of this whole um, synopsis is about you know how how do we set up our society whether it's our political economic cultural religious whatever avenue you can think of that makes up a human a, any kind of human society in the end the question is which group is that designed to benefit the most the average person who goes out there and, and is, works hard or the select few oligarchs who have all the money and then use their wealth to generate more and more power for themselves whether in the economy or in politics or in cultural uh, norms or what have you. So uh, that's kind of what I want to kind of leave this episode on is, you know, what do you think should be the foundation of human society? Should it be completely individualistic where it's every man for himself? Or should we come together and work together towards common goals? And what are these common goals? Who should benefit from these common goals? Should it be the, the, the vast majority of us who are working eight to five every single day or five days a week or possibly work multiple jobs in order to make ends meet or should it be the, the richest and most well-off to do among us? So keep that in mind, you know, as you kind of go about your day and, and uh, you think about how things are working, you know, the, the roads that are paved, the, the education that we get. Who should benefit from this? Who should, it, who should it be designed to favor, to uphold, to, to, uh, to lift up, to, to advance, to promote? Who should be the, the benefactor of all these different things in society? With that being said, I'm your host, Jason, bringing you another episode of The Detailing Mind, and I hope you have a good rest of your week.